Isn't it great to be here at the annual conference and all of those who've done so much work behind the scenes, producing your name tag, creating this fantastic sort of stage, organising all it. How about we start by giving them our thanks? A round of applause. Up on the screen, you can see a picture of the Neuropace. The Neuropace is a type of defibrillator for your brain. If you suffer from epileptic seizures, the Neuropace has sensors in your brain that detect the first tremors of an oncoming seizure, and then it sends electrical impulses into your brain to counteract the brain's haywire signals stopping the seizure from occurring. It is an astounding human invention that has the potential to do real good for hundreds of thousands of people suffering from epilepsy. And that is just one of thousands of medical inventions that we humans come up with every year. On the screen... Stairway to Heaven was voted on planetrock.com as the greatest rock song of all time. Uh, though admittedly, us human beings have only been playing rock as opposed to playing with rocks for the last 60 years. And then the big question is, did they actually rip off that distincting, distinctive sort of opening chord progression from Spirit's Taurus the recent jury verdict in the American court case said no, though, frankly, as an amateur listening to it, you think they're pretty similar. Nevertheless, Stairway to Heaven, the greatest rock song humans have ever produced, or Shakespeare's great tragedies, the great paintings of Rembrandt, the amazing sculptures of Michelangelo's David, to the terracotta warriors of China's first emperor, the scientific insights of Newton, of Einstein, the incredible feats of human engineering like the Great Wall of China, astronauts walking on the moon, the harnessing of wind, water and solar power and turning it into electricity to run an increasing amount of the planet Human beings are amazing. We are capable of the most astounding things, achievements of great beauty, imagination and creativity, probably seen climactically actually in Pokemon Go. <laughs> that's it. That's the only Pokemon Go joke. That's it, just right there. We're capable of poignant insight, moments of stirring speech, moments of great compassion and kindness. These are the heights of which we are capable. And in Psalm 8, in the Christian Old Testament, David the psalmist put it like this. He said, you have made human beings a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. 
all flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's the one true living God who has crowned us with glory and honour and endowed us with these incredible capacities as we rule over his world. And yet that's not the full story, is it? For every moment of human triumph, there seems to be a parallel moment of human depravity. Shakespeare's tragedies are monumental plays which strike home precisely because they highlight the tragic nature of our interactions with each other. The deceit, the duplicity, the deception, the death, which we all understand. The spending of millions and billions of dollars on a Cold War space race, yes, landed a handful of individuals on the moon, and yes, it gave us Kevlar and Velcro, but to which there was never a sufficient impetus to actually make us want to go back. And it makes you wonder about the ethics of the race in the first place. We mine the coal to power the planet and maybe make the planet unlivable through climate change as a result. We celebrate love and marriage, but only now are the terrible realities of domestic violence being exposed. Lawyers, I love lawyers, Lawyers proliferate. Why? Because we human beings don't respect one another. We can't get along and we insist on taking advantage of one another. Politicians spin lies, but that's because they're no different to me or you when we're in a tight spot. Minorities are oppressed, governments are corrupt, families and schools and institutions are not the safe places they ought to be. And neither are our churches, to our deep shame. In another Old Testament psalm, Psalm 51, the same psalmist, David, who wrote Psalm 8, after he had committed adultery with another man's wife and then had her husband killed in an attempt to cover up his guilt, in a moment of repentance and insight, he wrote these words, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We are capable of such wonderful triumphs, but also descend so quickly, so easily to terrible depths. What is it then to be human? As you look through those Humans of New York stories this morning, you saw many different perspectives on what it means to be human, what defines us. As human beings, that's the question. Is it just our biology? Is it our DNA? You've probably heard before, we share 98.8% of our DNA with chimpanzees. So is it that crucial 1.2% that defines us as human? Mind you, 50% of your DNA is the same as a banana. So don't get too excited. Maybe... What defines us is our culture, our achievements, our social organisation. Well, depending on what lens you choose to look through, you can create a description of humanity based on 
psychology, sociology, political ideology, economics, genetics, ecology, evolution, religion, or just about anything else, and they're certainly not going to give you the same answer, are they? Why does the question matter? Well, I'll tell you why. What it, we consider a human being to be has a massive impact on how we treat people as individuals and as a society. If your vision of a human being doesn't extend beyond, say, the economic vision, where they're just units of consumption, then you're less likely to put real value on the parts of human life that don't easily reduce down to a dollar sign. Or if your vision of a human being is purely chemical and biological, then your answer to many problems will be chemical and biological, maybe ignoring the psychological, the social or the spiritual. If your understanding of human being is that we're just the product of blind evolutionary forces, then you're going to be hard-pressed to find a compelling reason why we should show compassion and mercy to one another. Uh, Peter Singer is probably the best-known living Australian ethicist. He regards the privileged sanctity we often give to human life as a mistake. He says all animal life should be judged and treated on the same basis. According to Peter Singer, what really matters is not whether you belong to the race Homo sapien. What really matters for him is whether you are conscious, self-aware, capable of personal autonomy and able to feel pleasure and pain. And on that basis, he thinks it's morally justifiable to kill newborn babies because they don't have all those capabilities. Of course, he says that's only, you should only do that if the parents so choose, but if the parents so choose, he can see nothing morally wrong with that. It's the same. He says, no different to killing a dog, a pig, or a chicken. See, what you consider a human being to be has a very significant impact on how we treat others, individually and as a society. But it's also a question that matters to each of us personally. We all have deep questions about ourselves. Who am I? Who am I meant to be? What am I meant to be doing? Where do I find meaning and significance? And so we, we wonder, we search, maybe we experiment or reinvent ourselves, all in an attempt to craft answers to these basic deep questions. And behind all of this searching and questioning lies the most fundamental question, what is it to be a human being in this world? So where do we start? Well, as I mentioned, there's lots of ways of approaching this question of what is a human being. We can try to answer it biochemically or physiologically, sociologically, economically, experimentally. All of those will have some genuine insights to share but also, none of those disciplines are infallible. Like all human endeavour, their conclusions may be completely wrong or seriously compromised just as much as maybe they've got some inkling of truth. Moreover, for evangelical Christians, none of those are the right starting point. 
we don't start with what we can work out about ourselves. We start with the one true living God and what He has revealed to us. So John Calvin put it like this in his Institutes. It's there in your book on page 10. He said, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinise himself. We start to understand ourselves by first looking at God. We need God's revelation of himself, what he is like, his purity, his holiness, his love, his justice, as the straight edge to which we must be shaped, is how Calvin put it. The one true living God is the ultimate objective frame of reference. If we seek to understand and evaluate what it is to be human purely with reference to ourselves, we're bound to end up with an overly inflated view of ourselves. God is our reality check as we try to understand what it is to be human and humanity's place in the world. Moreover, the fact that our judgments are so prone to error means that we actually need to start with God and what He has revealed to us. And so as evangelicals, we start with the Bible as the divinely inspired record of God's revelation to us. Which brings us to the next point there on your page. The focus of God's revelation in the Christian Scriptures is the person of Jesus. Both who He is in the plans of God and what He has done. This is the heart of the Christian gospel, which just means God's grand public announcement to the world. You can see these ideas in the passage at the bottom of your page from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Paul the Apostle writes this, he says, This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all humans to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's the big picture The one true living God is our saviour and he wants all humans to be saved and to come to a personal knowledge of the truth. So how does God go about this? Well, Paul goes on there, verse 5, for there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humans, Christ Jesus, himself human who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. Notice what it says there. Jesus is absolutely central to God's save humanity plan. Paul highlights both who Jesus is and what he has done. The who is there in verse 5. Jesus is the Christ, a human being. The what he has done is in verse 6. He gave himself as a ransom. He traded himself in so that we could go free. Paul's talking there about Jesus' death on a cross for our sake. And the news about this, who Jesus is and what he's done within God's plan to save humanity, that is the Christian gospel that Paul the Apostle has been tasked with proclaiming. Verse 7, he says, For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So as we dig down into the Christian Bible to understand what is it to be a human being, we see here God's plan is to save us. Now, why? Why do we need saving? What from? Well, we'll get to that soon. 
And in particular, when we look at what the Bible has to say about the person of Jesus, the who he is and what he's done, we discover two truths, which we're going to look at in the two talks today. In terms of who he is, we're going to see that Jesus is the truest of all human beings. And in terms of what he's done, we'll see tonight that the most significant thing that can be said about humanity is grounded in what Jesus has done, what he is doing now and what he's promised to do. But that's for tonight. So, part B, Jesus, the truest human. Now, many of you will know that the Bible starts with an account of creation, where the one true living God creates all things, including humanity. And the first two humans, named Adam and his wife, Eve. You might easily assume that Adam and Eve are the paradigmatic human beings, the true models for humanity, since they're the first ones, right? But as the Bible account progresses, it becomes apparent that they are paradigmatic for the rest of us in lots of ways, but they are not the model for true humanity. True humanity finds itself in the person of Jesus. According to the Bible, Adam is the copy, but Jesus is the real deal. The true model of humanity as God intended us all to be. Now, that might seem out of chronological order to us, but that's not a problem for God since he created all time and space anyway. Or to use different images, um, Jesus is the original Adam is the photocopy, the low-res scan. Or Jesus is the reality, Adam is the shadow. Or Jesus is the real product, Adam is just a sort of prototype. Or in theological language, which reflects the words used in the New Testament to describe this relationship, Jesus is the antitype and Adam is the type. Now, we can see this in two important New Testament passages that compare Adam with Jesus, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Have a look at Romans 5 there at the top of page 11. Let me read it to you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's a dense passage. Let me draw some things out for you. Key phrase at the end of verse 14 there. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The one to come being whom Paul then identifies as Jesus Christ. Adam is the shadowy copy of the true human. The truest human, the real deal when it comes to being a human being, is Jesus. 
So Karl Barth, reflecting on this passage, put it like this on your book there. Man's essential and original nature is to be found, therefore, not in Adam, but in Christ. In Adam, we can only find it prefigured. Adam can therefore be interpreted only in the light of Christ and not the other way around. If we're going to take the claims of the Christian Bible seriously, then the starting point for true anthropology, true understanding of humanity, including true understanding of yourself, has to be with the person of Jesus. He is the truest human being, the definitive model. Now, I'll tell, me, I'll tell you what that means. If we want to know how we should relate to God, or how we should relate to each other, or how we should relate to our family, or how we should relate to the world, we start with Jesus. Because He is the truest human being. If we want to know what it is to have a meaningful life, a richly filled life, a life of substance and significance, we start with Jesus. We always start with Jesus. But it's not just about starting with Jesus. The Bible reveals that humanity is on up. I got your attention. I'll do that again. Humanity is on up trajectory. Humanity is on a trajectory. Listen to what Paul then writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then a bit later in the chapter he says, If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is, human beings have a God-planned and God-enabled trajectory that Jesus has made possible. Whereas we're all born in the image of the first man, Adam, when we are reborn as a Christian, we belong to Christ and are remade in His image, including a future bodily resurrection to look forward to. So being a human being is not a static state. We have a trajectory from in Adam to in Christ. I've tried to represent it there in the picture on your page. Now, if you work through 1 Corinthians 15, you get a bit of a picture of what it looks like to be either in Adam or in Christ. 
Now, and uh, here's an activity for you. Get a pen, get your booklet, and actually you can match with me what it looks like to be in Adam and what it looks like to be in Christ. It's going to come up here on the screen for you. If you work through that chapter there, you can see on verse 22, in Adam we all die, but in Christ we can live again. Or if you move on to verse 53, in Adam, being in Adam means mortality, whereas being reborn in Christ, according to this passage, means immortality. Or in verses 47 and 48, being in Adam means having a dustly, made of dust, which is just another way of talking about mortality, a dustly body. But being reborn in Christ means a heavenly body. Or in verse 44, being in Adam means having a natural body, where being in Christ means having a spiritual body. And I think it's spirit meaning Holy Spirit, like a spiritual body. Or in verse 42, in Adam means having a perishable body, but being in Christ means receiving an imperishable body. Verse 43, in Adam means a body that dies in weakness. But being in Christ means a body that is raised in power. Verse 43 again, in Adam means a body that dies in dishonour. But being in Christ means a body that is raised in glory. This is the great God-planned trajectory for each one of us that God has made possible through Jesus Christ. This is God's desire for you. When you were a little kid, Hand up if you ever dreamed just even a little bit about being an astronaut. Come on. Seriously, what were the rest of you doing? Playing dinosaurs or something? Imagine being the first human being to walk on Mars. Imagine the adulation you would receive. I saw a tweet yesterday. Um, I think it was Buzz Aldrin, who was one of the first people to walk on the moon, said, 47 years ago today, Neil, me, and whoever the other dude was, Mike was his name, but, you know, Mike, we blasted off from Cape Canaveral to them, like, 47 years ago. 47 years later, he's still being, like, the adulation, the glory. Imagine if you were the first person to land on Mars. The glory that would be yours for the rest of your days. God has a far more impressive trajectory in store for you. From your life in Adam to a glorious, immortal, imperishable life for all eternity in Christ. That is your God-planned, God-enabled trajectory.
we imagine sometimes, I think, that we are more powerful, more competent, more exalted than we really are. But I dare say that God's plans for us are far greater than we possibly realise. His desire is to see you raised from death in glorious immortality. That is not just some vain wish that He has. Like you dreaming that one day you might walk on Mars or one day you might be rich and famous, some sort of vain wish. No, he has already put some one person on that trajectory and brought them to the end, the the man Jesus. He's already been raised in glory. And whilst we all currently bear the image of Adam, his desire for each of us is that we might bear the image of Jesus and share his glory. That is the human trajectory, the path to glory that God has planned for each one of us. This trajectory for humanity is part of the bigger trajectory of God's plans for all his creatures. In fact, all of his creation, as revealed in the Bible. We need to trace this out because understanding this wider trajectory is going to be important for what we'll do for the rest of the week. Over the page, page 12. I'm going to use the picture there at the top of your page to tell the big story of the Bible in the next five minutes. Uh, It starts with creation. Genesis 1 and 2. All things are created very good by the one true living creator God, in particular Adam and Eve created by God to serve him as God and to rule his world for him. They are provided with everything they need. They enjoy God's presence. They enjoy all of his provision there in the Garden of Eden. The creation accounts reveal to us God's good intentions for his world, including us as his creatures. But then sin enters God's world, represented by that vertical dotted line. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject God's command. They refuse God's word. They reject his wisdom and they refuse his way. And so, in doing that, they reject him as their God. And as a terrible consequence, they're ejected from the Garden of Eden, cut off from God's presence, and they're destined to die. There's a breakdown in their relationship with God, in their relationship with each other, and in their relationship with the world around them. The account in Genesis 3 reveals the rebellion against God that touches every human heart, what the Bible calls sin. It explains to us why things are not as they ought to be. And it shows us the terrible consequences of our rejection of God, His Word and His ways. But because God loves all that He's made, including us, His rebellious creatures, He will not let His good intentions for His creation be thwarted. He will not let his good plans for the world fall down to the ground. So God sets into motion a plan to fulfill his good intentions for his creation. A plan of salvation to rescue us and the entire world from our slavery to sin and its consequences. God does this in the Bible through a series of covenants or promises made to the Old Testament nation of Israel. The key covenants were uh, promises were made to Abraham, represented there by that curved line you can see. It was then followed by covenant promises made to Moses, to David, and then a promise of a new covenant to the Old Testament prophets. 
These are key stages in salvation history, preparing for the moment when God would finally establish his good purposes in the new covenant, in the arrival of Jesus. But there was a problem through all of this, a big problem. Sin was still ruling in people's hearts. So despite these covenant promises that God made to Israel, which were meant to get them back on track, the tragic reality was that as a nation, Israel failed to keep their side of the covenant. They kept kept on in the rebellion of Adam and Eve back in the garden. So they still failed to listen to God's word. They failed to heed his wisdom. They rejected his way. They refused to have him as their God. Sin still ruled in their heart. Even though Israel was God's chosen people, turns out they were still in Adam. They were ruled by sin. And so they were cut off from fellowship with God and they weren't the people God had created them to be. In fact, only a small remnant of Israel over all those years actually kept their side of the covenant and worshipped God as the only true God. Which brings us then to Jesus. As we saw earlier in uh, 1 Timothy, Jesus stands at the centre of God's plan of salvation. That's why he's in the centre of our picture. When we look at the events around Jesus' ministry, his death and his resurrection, we see most clearly both the depth of human sin and the extent of God's love, the determination that God has to bring about his good intentions for his creation. Because Jesus comes as the one sent by God to save his creatures from the mess we've put ourselves in. He comes as the Christ, the King at the centre of God's plans, the one through whom God will fulfil all of his good plans for his creation. And yet, when Jesus comes, the very people he comes to save kill him. The nation of Israel conspire together with the rest of humanity to put Jesus to death, even though he was the very one God sent to save them. See, that's how dark sin really is. We kill even the one. God sends to save us. Uh, I guess that what, that re- what that reveals is that sin really does have a grip on every human heart, irrespective of whether you were born into Old Testament Israel or not. Whether we're born before Jesus or after Jesus, whether we're born a Jew or any other nationality, we are all slaves to sin, unless God does something about it. Or the other way to say it is, we are all in Adam. We're just like Adam, rejecting God's word, his wisdom and his ways, refusing to let him be our God. And so we bear the consequences, like Adam. We're ruled by sin, we're destined for death. It's Adam's great shadow that touches every one of us. We're all born in Adam. And yet it's not until Jesus arrives on the scene that we see things beginning to be restored to how they really ought to be. Jesus, the true human, shows us what it means to be truly human in relationship with God, with others, with the world. He's the focal point of God's dealings with the world throughout all of human history, which is why the lines in the diagram converge on him. 
and central to what Jesus achieves are the key events there in the diagram of his death on the cross and his resurrection to real, physical, immortal life three days later. Jesus' death and resurrection are the beginning of the fulfilment of all of God's purposes to put everything right after the destruction and death brought by sin. But the story doesn't end there with Jesus' death and resurrection. The Bible's teaching ends with God's glorious new creation. You can see there on the screen. Jesus' own teaching recorded in the Christian New Testament is that he will return in glory and bring with him the renewal of all things, a new heaven and a new earth, where all those who put their faith, their trust in him, will share his glory. That's the glorious new future that God has promised and has already begun in Jesus himself, in his resurrection from the dead. Well, that's the general shape of the Bible story. Creation, corrupted by sin, through the promises made to Israel, reaching a climax in Jesus, and onto the glorious new creation. Now, because that is the overall shape of the Bible, we're going to see that shape again and again this week as we trace different aspects of what it means to be human through the Bible account. So getting to know this diagram will help you to get to understand how God is working out His purposes throughout history. It'll help you be a more responsible reader of the Bible because you'll be able to work out where the different bits of the Bible fit together into God's overall plan. What about what we were talking about before, the trajectory from in Adam to in Christ? How could you match that onto the diagram? Well, I've put that there in your book, the second diagram there on page 12. We all start in Adam, following the way of our ancestor Adam, rejecting God's word, wisdom and ways, refusing to let him be our God. But the key difference that Jesus makes is that he makes true humanity a real possibility for each of us. Jesus doesn't just show us what true humanity looks like. He makes possible your trajectory from in Adam to in Christ. That's the great announcement of the Christian gospel. The trajectory is made possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection, and it's taken hold of by you, by grace, through faith. That's the great story of what God is doing in the world. This is the picture of human history that the Bible draws for us. And this story laid out there for you this is the story in which we find real meaning of what it is to be human. And notice that Jesus is front and centre in it all. This whole story, this whole trajectory is possible only because of who Jesus is and what he has done. So, in the time I have left in this session, I want us to think some more about this first question of who Jesus is. Part C, there in your outline. The astounding message of the Bible is that the God who created us has become one of us. Just let that sink into your mind for a moment. 
the one true living God who created all of us became one of us. Jesus was not just a peasant living and dying in Palestine 2,000 years ago. The consistent testimony of the New Testament is that God, the eternal Son, took on human flesh, coming amongst us as the man Jesus. This is how the Apostle John put it there on page 12. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, who has made Him known. Jesus was fully God. Other New Testament writers express the same truth in their own way. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Or on the next page, page 13, Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The New Testament is consistent in saying Jesus was fully God. And yet, they're also adamant that Jesus was a fully real human being. Indeed, in their view, it was essential that Jesus be fully human if he was going to save us. So the writer to the Hebrews again, this time from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Or this time Paul, making the same point, Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You get what they're saying? If Jesus wasn't fully human like the rest of us, then he couldn't save us because he couldn't die in our place. So the conclusion, when you put these two facts together, the New Testament claims Jesus is fully God and yet fully like us in every way. He has human limitations, human frailties. He endured human temptation in every way like the rest of us. In fact, the key difference that the New Testament highlights between Jesus and us is that unlike us, Jesus did not give in to sin. Hebrews 4.15 puts it there in the middle of your page. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Now, this is where it starts to feel a bit complicated for us, and I know it's only the first talk. Jesus, fully God and fully human. How exactly does that work? And you can see there on page 13, four of the classic heresies. These are not true. These are wrong. These are four of the classic heresies when it comes to holding together these truths of Jesus as fully God and fully human. First of all, Jesus is not some sort of supercharged human. Yes, Jesus turned water into wine. Yes, he healed the sick. He commanded storms to be still. But he is not like some human superhero out of the Marvel Universe. He's not a human being with superpowers like Quicksilver or Scarlet Witch or even Captain America. You know why? Because unlike him, unlike them, sorry, Jesus is real. He's not some sort of supercharged human, but neither is he just God dressed up as a human. It's called a doceticism from the word docao, which just means seems. God seemed like a human being, but he wasn't really like one of us. Like when you played dress-ups as a kid, you know, you pretended to be a zebra in your zebra onesie. It wasn't when you were a kid, that was last weekend, that's okay, I won't embarrass you. You dressed up as a zebra in your onesie, but you weren't actually a zebra, were you? It was just dress-ups, just pretending. That's not how it was with Jesus. It's not God just dressed up like a human being. But also, he wasn't some sort of God brain in a human body. This was a heresy known as Apollinarianism. There's a spelling mistake there in your book. It's not Apollinarianism, it's Apollinarianism. Uh, named after the person who put forward this idea, Apollinarius of Laodicea, who lived in the 4th century AD. The problem with this view that Jesus made with some sort of human being with just a God brain is that only what God takes on of our humanity is Jesus able to save by his death? If Jesus did not have a fully human mind, then our minds have not been redeemed by his death. So we have to reject this as a possible solution. And then finally, Jesus was not two full persons in one body. It's not as though there are two persons, God the Eternal Son and the human Jesus of Nazareth somehow co-inhabiting the one physical body. That was the heresy of Nestorius in the 5th century AD. But the problem with this view is it underplays the reality of the incarnation, that God himself fully became a human being. In this view, rather, he just sort of co-inhabits with the human Jesus, but God does not actually become a human being. So none of these accurately represent 
the biblical evidence that we just looked at. The way the Christian church ended up resolving the confusion is over the page on page 14. Having thought and prayed about it for many, many, many years, the Christian church just resolved that the way to understand in faithfulness to the Scriptures is to say that Jesus was one person in two natures. As I have there in the page, in Jesus, the divine person of God the Son lived a normal human life through his human nature not abandoning the qualities of his divine nature, yet not allowing those qualities to distort his human nature by removing their limitation. Jesus really was the one true living God come amongst us fully as one of us. God embraced all the limitations and frailties of being one of his creatures, coming in the very likeness of our sinful flesh, prone to decay and disease. I mean, that is an astounding, astoundingly humbling thing to do, isn't it? If, if you were the one true living God, just imagine for a moment, if you had created all of this, would you choose to become a frail human being? prone to decay and disease and death? Would you do that? Well, he did. To save you. What an incredibly humbling thing for the one true living God to do. Gerald Bray puts it this way there on your page. Put in the language... Jesus could be fully God without knowing as a man the secrets of nuclear physics or even how to use a telephone. His omniscience as God did not automatically carry over into his life on earth as a man. The one true living God fully embraced limited frailty. From the destruction that sin has brought to enable our trajectory from death in Adam to glory in Christ. That's how much he loved us. So what does all of this mean as I come to the end? What it means is we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus when we want to see and know the only true God. If you want to know God's character, what He cares about, if you want to know God's priorities and His will, then we look to Jesus because Jesus reveals God the Father to us. So in John 14, 8 to 10, we're told, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been here among you for such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So we look to Jesus when we want to see and know the only true God.
But also we look to Jesus to see and know what it is to be truly human. Jesus really is one of us. He really does understand what it is to be limited, to feel fragile, to be disappointed. Jesus knows what it's like to be happy. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to feel weak, to have to persevere in hope, to live day by day in faith and trust. And yet, in all of that, unlike us, he did it uncorrupted by sin. He shows us the truest picture of humanity. And finally, Jesus doesn't just show us who we could have been, he shows us who we will be. So we look to Jesus to embrace God's trajectory for us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we commit ourselves to Jesus in repentance and faith, then we know that we have immediately moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. Our new trajectory has begun. And therefore, one day, we will be like Him, raised in immortal glory as part of the glorious new creation. That is God's plan and purpose for each one of us. Whether you know it or not, actually, whether you've taken hold of it or not, you have been made by God for glory. That trajectory and all of the implications for how we then understand ourselves, that's what we're exploring this week, as you can see then laid out for you on the next page where we're going the rest of the week. Let me lead us in prayer. by your great love for us that saw you take on our frail flesh that we might become through faith in the Lord Jesus all that you intend us to be. We give you thanks and praise for your mercy, for your plan of salvation for the Lord Jesus, our Saviour, and for the opportunity to think and drink deeply from your truths about these things this week. So write your truth onto our hearts and minds that we might live in thanks, with joy, and a sure hope that one day we will live forever with you and the Lord Jesus in everlasting glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Jesus is the starting point.